Uh, so what we are going to be thinking about today is uh, godliness in the online world. And I thought I would just begin by reading a few verses from Colossians 3. Uh, I didn't know uh, Chris was going to uh, use the prayer from Colossians earlier, but it's good because Colossians is really the book, um, I think, that gives us the model for online ministry when Paul uh, tells the Colossians that though he is absent from them in body, he is present with them by spirit. In my uh, Priscilla seminar group, we were looking at that passage just the day after the very first lockdown had started, and we were all so struck uh, by that, that even 2,000 years ago, sometimes ministry happened without being face-to-face in the same room as people. But this is from Colossians 5. Uh, this is Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, lies. I wonder if that sounds like the online world in your experience, full of sexual immorality, greed, rage, malice, and so on. Well, Paul continues, doesn't he? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And of course, love. Well, what about that? Does that sound like your experience of the online world? I hope so. I hope you have seen wonderful examples of goodness, compassion, humility, gentleness and love online. But I don't know, your experience of the online world will be very different from mine. The internet is vast and contains multitudes. You will engage with parts of it and I will engage with different parts of it. Your Facebook will be different from my Facebook. So your experience of the online world is different from mine. But wherever you engage online and however much you engage online, we shouldn't be surprised to find both the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. Because, more or less, all humanity is now online, at least in our Western culture, but increasingly across the whole of the world. So, of course, the online world is like the real world because the online world is the real world. They are real people that we are interacting with. They are real conversations. You can find real resources... Uh, the online world is the real world. Now, of course, there are some differences, aren't there? We notice different forms of etiquette and different modes of expression online. I think it's a bit like when you move to a place with a different culture, whether that's overseas or just, you know, from north to south or even just, you know, down the road. There's a different culture and there are different local norms. Different expressions people use, different kinds of etiquette that people have. And you kind of have to take a little moment to get used to those, to understand how that works. And the same, I think, is true online. Online in general, but also each online community will have its own forms of etiquette, its own ways of expressing things, um, its own set of local norms. 
But those forms of etiquette and expression don't change the fact that online or offline, we are all dealing with the same humanity for good and for ill. And that means that godliness in the online world is fundamentally the same as godliness in the offline world. So I think I might as well just sit down now and say, well, everything we have been learning and thinking about, just do that. I mean, I think it ought to be obvious. But perhaps from the way that many Christians behave online, it may seem that it is not. And I want first, before we go on to think about how we can behave in a godly way online, to think about some of the reasons why it may not be obvious and why it may be more difficult and why there may be particular temptations and struggles in the online world that are different from the offline world. Now, I'm going to try pressing something. Press the space bar. Ta-da! Okay. So, um, oh, I can see it down here. There we go. I don't know if you came across this. This is quite a recent headline. In 2019, almost all of Facebook's top Christian pages were run by foreign troll farms. Now, I do want to put a little caveat in there. Almost all of Facebook's top Christian pages are uh, populated by American Christians. I suspect there were UK Christians also on these pages, but it may not be quite as representative of the UK church as the American church. What is the problem with that? If that's where all your Christians are spending time online, is in Facebook groups being run by foreign troll farms... James. What's a foreign troll farm? Sorry. Sorry, do feel free to ask for explanations of these things. Um, Yeah. Mark Lucas, I have seen you on Facebook. You don't get to play that card. Um, So these are places usually in Eastern Europe or in um, sort of uh, developing world countries where people are paid to sit on computers all day and press like or unlike, or share, and they have face, fake profiles, that, and they are being told to big up this post, or to downgrade that post, um, and spread fake news, probably, almost certainly, in these so, kind so of they places. they generating content, not just... They, yes, they can be generating content, or they can just be used by somebody who is a content generator to manipulate how that content appears, who it's shown to, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. But what it is not is thousands and thousands of normal Facebook users who are individual real people choosing what they themselves want to see or like or or click. They're being told what to do and they will do it thousands of times an hour. Um, Yeah, so what what might be problematic about that? I pray for false perception of whether the article, the the item is, is good or bad yeah absolutely it gives things credibility um which ought not to have credibility um it it makes it appear it's been read by many people approved of by many people might make it seem more real andy how do you know that that statement is credible well uh yeah no that is a good point it was um some research that was done i forget now the source of it um but it was some research that was done by a uh legitimate academic, which was then uh, translated. This was from a Christian, uh, you know, a sort of um, respectable Christian uh, news site. So I say, exactly. And that is one of the big questions, isn't it? Is how do, how do we know 
what to trust. So I think one of the first big problems is that we don't have nearly as much control online. We don't have complete control offline, but we don't have as much control online in terms of what we see. The algorithms. Do I need to explain what an algorithm is? Put your hand up. Oh, yes, please. Just to hear you do it. No. (laughs) (laughs) The internet giants, Facebook, Google, whoever it is, will all have systems to control what kind of content you see, that you see most of, that you see first, that you see at all. They want to be in charge of putting stuff in front of you and they will um, measure what you look at, measure what you seem to be interested in, measure who you follow and they will use that to decide what you should see next. The algorithm is a lack of control. What other kinds of things are we not in control of online? Once you put something up... Yeah, you're not in control of what happens to your content when you put it online, absolutely. And you see that very much with, um, you know, teenagers and young people who put up photos that they never should, but then those photos go uh, all over the place. But any kind of content, you make a, a foolish remark and a comment on somebody's blog, you're not in control of that. Someone will have a screenshot of that. The internet wayback machine will have a cached copy of that page once it's there, it's there, and it can be used against you. Yeah. Uh, what else? I think accidents are a problem. Nine innocent Google searches that get porn. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever done this. I did. This did happen to me, genuinely, three or four months ago. And I, I can't remember what the search term was, but it was a craft item that I was looking for. <laughs> and I put it into Google without a thought, and and... I was not expecting the links that came up. It can happen, can't it? And that's fine if you can just click away. But if you're somebody who's already struggling with pornography, that's just there in front of you as an accident and can lead to all kinds of uh, problems. What else online are you not in control of? Advertising. Advertising. It's getting harder and harder, I think, isn't it, to be online without being advertised at. Have you ever had an advert for something that you have already bought shown to you online? It's frightening, isn't it? How do they know? I'd once bought a pair of trousers in Sainsbury's, offline, you know, in an actual shop. They were quite distinctive. And the next day I was wearing them and Facebook started advertising them to me. I mean, it was really freaky, the it's just something you mentioned to your wife today. Yeah. yeah. And Alexa's been listening, and then who knows where you are. Most of us are used to thinking of the internet as free. doesn't cost anything to get a Facebook account. doesn't cost anything to use Google. Who is paying for all your free stuff? The advertisers. The advertisers. And of course it's true that in the offline world you are advertised at. But it just feels... Uh, more online, and certainly the more personalised adverts online are very good at getting in your mind. Even when you don't realise that you're being advertised at. I like to watch um, YouTube videos of people doing dressmaking. Seems pretty inoffensive, pretty innocuous. I find that the more I watch those videos, the more money I spend on fabric. And they are not advertising. They are not 
videos made by the shops. They're just people who are making stuff and tell you where they bought their things. You're like, oh, that's really nice. Oh, I'll go and buy that. You know, you're being advertised at almost whether you realise it or not. Yeah, Emma. Yeah, I just want to say about um, YouTube. Our son likes to watch um, trucks and things. Some, yeah. It's a 10-year-old boy, but we won't let him watch on his own because even with parent filters on, the suggestions of what you can watch next really aren't appropriate. Yeah. Absolutely. So all those kinds of things, you're not as in control as you might want to be. And the other thing uh, that we have, social media addiction. Can you stop? No, really, can you stop? Could you stop? What is it like if you lose your phone? What is it like if you go away for a week and there's no Wi-Fi? (laughs) And that's great. But maybe not everyone feels that's wonderful. Maybe some people feel anxious. Maybe a few people feel nervous. I don't think we are as in control online as we are used to being. The algorithms, the accidents, the advertising, the addiction. What about accountability online? How is accountability online different from offline? How can you escape accountability online? You can create an anonymous account. You can create an anonymous account. And in some places, some kinds of communities online, that is expected, that is the norm. Nobody is using their real name. (coughs) Sometimes that's okay, that's sort of innocuous. But what is the effect on you if you're in a space when nobody knows who you really are? You could do anything, can't you? Nobody's going to know. Your vicar's not going to know. Your prayer partners aren't going to know. Your your husband's not going to know. Who's going to know? Well, the Lord is going to know. And Google. Google Google always knows as well. That is true. And, you know, probably the police could find out if they, they came and raided your house. But the temptation is real, isn't it? Nobody knows who I am. What is stopping me from behaving in a particular way. Have we got one there? Oh, yeah, this is Katie Price. This is from The Mirror, so that, you know, we know this must be true. But nonetheless, Katie Price campaigns to ban anonymous social media profiles, uh, and, and she's got a petition together, and so that is going to be debated in Parliament. She is hoping that by uh, banning these anonymous profiles that it will um, force some kind of accountability on people for what they say. I mean, it seems unlikely to work. For me, it's it's a, anonymous thing if you sort of put a nickname. Yes, but if you put a false name, then how do they know that? Right, exactly. So Facebook, for it's example, like Phil Savage, for instance. Yeah, who, who's going to know exactly? Yeah, I mean, spelling, you can spell it. Facebook used to have a policy that they tried to enforce that you could only use your real name on your Facebook profile, and and I think this is still the case that if you try to put in something like Mickey Mouse it won't let you establish that as your Facebook profile. But like you say, if you were to put in Phil Sauerbutz, or a lot of people I know, particularly people who are teachers, will use their first name and their middle name, you know, those kinds of things get through. Um, And so, yeah, there's... there's, Yeah, it's... There can be genuine reasons why someone shouldn't be forced to reveal their identity. Definitely. So, for example, if you are a teacher... You do not want all of the kids in your school 
to be able to find you on Facebook. I think that's reasonable. You're entitled to a certain degree of a private life. And and I think that would be one way of expressing that. There can be other reasons as well that are, are perfectly reasonable to do with your workplace or if you have an abusive relationship in your past, for example. Having a false name online is not necessarily a wrong thing to do in itself. But we need to recognise the temptation that comes with that of not being accountable. And I think that can even be the case uh, if you are using your real name. One of the wonderful things about the internet is that it lets you find other people who are like you. It lets you find the other people who are interested in the same very niche thing that you are interested in. The 10 other people in the world who read that book when you were a child and want to talk about it. And that, I mean, it is really, really wonderful in that sort of way. But even if those people know your real name, it is in a detached sort of way, isn't it? No one from your church probably is in that group. No one from your family may be in that group. So even there, there is a sort of detachment from your real life accountability that gives you a freedom maybe to think, oh, I could get away with using this kind of language, writing that kind of story, watching that kind of video where people are, you know, bullying somebody or swearing at somebody. Nobody's really noticing that I've done that. You know, you're in your little community and it's great. And, you know, in a sense, it's no different from being in the rugby club or, you know, going fishing with your non-Christian mates. But together with all the other things about the online world, it just makes it a tempting place, I think, to sin. So lack of controls, lack of accountability. I think there's maybe one other way in which the online space is different from the offline space, or at least uh, where this, this is, is highlighted. Have you ever had the experience of being in a group of people, large crowd, and finding yourself doing something that the next day you look back and think, I, mean, I don't know what I was thinking. What, why, did I, why did we do that? Who was it who first said, you know, let's all go marching down here and yelling in the street or whatever it is I just there's something I find very fascinating about group psychology I don't really understand it I don't really understand why crowds of people gathered listening to Hitler start cheering him but they did people just like us it's easy in the online world to feel like you're in a large crowd and your actions go unnoticed You're just another one of the two and a half million people who've watched this awful video. You're just another one of the 10,000 people who've retweeted that unkind tweet. But even more than that, there's something along about the crowd psychology that I think we get online. How often have you been in a conversation with another person? All the time, right? How often have you been in a conversation with, I don't know, four or five other people? Pretty often. How often have you been in a conversation with 10,000 other people all at the same time? Right. And if 9,999 of those people are all saying black is white, I mean, there's quite a large part of me sitting there going, no, obviously not, you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. 
But there's also a bit of me, like, they all think that. What if I see that I don't? And once again, our minds are much more easily led by other people, particularly in large groups, than we realise. I don't know. Maybe it's different depending where you are in the online world, but I think that crowd psychology often happens, and I think we see it um, in quite a lot of the uh, kinds of things, actually, that that are in the living and love and faith thing, particularly the transgender stuff, but also... Uh, stuff around uh, sexuality and non-binary and and gender queerness and all of that kind of thing. Being online, it allows you to find your tiny little niche of other people who are like you. And then if you can begin to dominate a conversation, say it again and again and again, people hear it again and again and again. They see it all over the place, what feels like all over the place, because the algorithm is pointing you to the content that's similar to what you've already seen. And you begin to think differently. And you don't even notice that you are doing it. It can be really dangerous. And finally, similarly thinking about the sort of crowdness of online, the tyranny of the majority. Cancel culture. Mob culture. But here, the internet mob mentality. The pile-on. Somebody says something, and maybe they're wrong, what, ha- what happens in a normal conversation? Well, you say, I think you're wrong about that. You're in a small group. A few of you say, oh, I think you're wrong about that. Yeah, and also, because I think maybe also it would mean this. You're wrong about that. You're wrong online. The first person tells you. The second person tells you. The hundredth person tells you. The five thousandth person tells you. Hundred and fifty thousandth person tells you. How do you feel being told how wrong you are? 150,000 times. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. And even if you know you are right, it's very hard to have that kind of often aggressive, often uh, expressed in very foul language, often expressed actually with threats, coming against you thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And so what happens is things don't get passed on to the duly constituted authorities. Things don't get reported to the police or the safeguarding or dealt with by, I don't know, your family or your employer or your minister. It's, it's already gone past that. And the mob culture wins. It's easy to get caught up in that. It's easy to think, oh, I'm just clicking a like on that. I need to show that, that I agree with those who are right. Well, do you? Do they need to know that you think that too? Or have they already been told often enough how wrong they are? So, okay, so there are some things that I do think makes godliness online a particular kind of challenge to us. I want us to spend most of our time, though, thinking about how we guard our godliness both as consumers online and contributors online. Um, I just want to put in a little side note here. I am not doing a seminar about porn. Clearly one of the things that the internet has massively changed is accessibility of pornography, uh, particularly, I think, for women, uh, but obviously it's massively opened up accessibility for men as well. The technology is not neutral, and, and obviously technology is never neutral. And in this case, the internet allows people to consume porn secretly, 
you don't have to go into the little shop and buy the magazine or, you know, risk somebody seeing you sneaking into, you know, the strip club or whatever it is. You can do it secretly in the privacy of your bedroom. And so, of course, that changes who consumes porn, how much they consume, the content of what they consume. It opens up temptation in vast new ways. Wherever you are, if your phone is with you, porn is right there with you. It's ungodly to consume. It's destructive for your relationships. It's responsible for uh, human trafficking and exploitation, usually of women and children, though not exclusively. Um, yeah, and it's become almost unpoliceable since the, uh, with the onset of the internet. So I just want to say, I know that's out there, but that is not really the main focus of what we are talking about here. I want to think about our normal everyday consumption online. And I maybe just uh, stop for a moment and talk to the two or three people around you. What are you consuming online that is good or true or noble or right or pure or lovely or admirable? What are you consuming that is directing your heart towards the Lord? What are you consuming that is turning your heart away from God? What are you consuming that is tempting you towards uh, those things we mentioned at the beginning, rage, malice, slander, lying, greed, lust? What are you consuming that's turning your heart to God? What are you consuming that is turning your heart away?